This program is a proud member of Univaz. Unified, unique, voices. Learn more at univazpods.net. Hello, my name's Patrick, and I'm a Scream Queen. I'm a Scream Queen, and so are you! Hello again, my beautiful screamers, and welcome to another episode of Scream Queens, the podcast where horror gets gay. This is episode 298, and tonight we are continuing our Pride Month celebration, taking a look at LGBT independent horror filmmakers. This is the second segment of that, and we're going to be talking to the fabulous Alan Roe Kelly. Actor, director, producer, costumer, makeup artist, you name it, Alan does it. And he's here and he's going to be sharing all his experiences behind the scenes on some of his movies. Dish in the dish and spoon in the spoon? Fork in the... I got nothing. I got nothing. Oh, hold on a second because you got to stop right there. You got to know right now. Before we go any further, hi, I'm Patrick Walsh, and for the past 10 years, I have been your guide to the weird and wonderful world of horror movies, but you have to see them through my very, very gay little eyes. <laughs> but for this month, we're not just looking at them through my eyes, we're looking at them through the eyes of the people who made them, yo. Yay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a few things that I need you to know before we get started is that this, I think I say at the beginning of the segment with Alan that it's Segment one, it's not, obviously, it's segment two, because I already did segment one with Bart Mastronardi on Monday, right? Of course, right. Now, I was planning on releasing these episodes with Bart and Alan back to back, but initially I planned to do them in the other order. Alan first, then Bart. But I had recorded this segment with Alan, and I'd screwed up the file in the editing process, and the clock was ticking, and I said, you know what, why don't I just put Bart first, and then I can go back and fix my mistakes with Alan at a more leisurely pace instead of rushing through it and short-sighting Alan because, you know, I said to Alan, I'm like, Alan, you deserve better. You don't need no rush job from me. I need to take my time on you. And then he slapped me because I deserve it, really, honestly. And also, since this was a while ago, I recorded this a while ago with Alan, I'm still suffering in the recording from my uh, tongue bite incident. Yeah, it's that bad. It's that bad. That lasted for like three weeks. So I slur. Every now and then, and I'm not drunk, and I'm not having a stroke, it's just, I, I just bit my tongue. Motherfucker. I start talking about my tongue, and I bite my tongue. It's been days since I bit my tongue. Okay, so in other words, I'm talking funny on the recording with Alan. That's why. And now I'm going to be talking funny for the rest of this episode. You're like, you just, just admit it, Patrick, you're drunk right now. I'm not. I'm not. Damn you. I'm not. Now, normally I'd say, Patrick, stop babbling and introduce Alan, but I do have to say one more thing before we get going, is that I talked to Alan before we started recording, asked what the preferred pronoun was, and Alan said, because Alan's signature style is ambiguity and mystery. So if you hear me sliding back and forth between he and she and they, I'm not misgendering anybody. We made this agreement in advance. Don't write me emails. We can write me emails, but not about that. Don't yell at me is what I'm saying. I ask permission. All right, so I've got Clarence, Clarence. Instead of me rattling on and on and risking more injury to my tongue and your ear holes, why don't I shut up, play a little music, and introduce you to the fabulous Alan Kelly. 
So joining me on this first installment of our Pride Month celebration, where we're looking at queer horror filmmakers, I am delighted to bring to you a person who manages to marry 1940s Hollywood glamour with the Grand Guignol gore of old Paris. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and my GNCs, wherever you may be, please welcome for the first time to the Scream Queen stage, Alan Rowe Kelly. Why, Alan Roe Kelly, as I live and breathe, welcome to Scream Queens. Thank you very much, darling. It's a pleasure to be here on your network. It's been a long time coming, Alan. I'm sorry, I've been listening to too much of Tallulah Bankhead's radio program on the rate on YouTube all the time. Do you ever listen to that? There is no such thing as too much Tallulah Bankhead anything. I uh, tell me about it. I, I'm so I, I just so want to be her. <laughs> it's just, being, just from the you know all the way to the voice to you know the whole nine yards. Amazing. Indeed, indeed. Speaking of amazing personalities, Alan Roe Kelly. Yay! Yes. Hey, okay, here's the thing about Alan. I'm going to do my honest summation of the career of Alan Roe Kelly, and then I'm going to do my shady <laughs> version. <laughs> That's fine, too. Probably more appreciated. Well, they're very similar. They all, they start the same way. All right, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Broadway musical company, Elaine Stritch asked the question, does anyone still wear a hat? And I would have to say, when it comes to making horror movies, not only does Alan Roe Kelly wear a hat, he wears all the damn hats. Actor, writer, director, producer. I actually was looking at your, your IMDb page with all the work, the jobs that you do on movies, Alan, and I got tired reading it. I'm like, God, this is too long. It was like, it was like War and Peace. <laughs> well, you try to keep busy. What can I say? <laughs> you, know, you know, and you know how it is in this business, independent-wise. You try to do a little bit of everything just so you can keep busy. It's not like people are throwing us money every year to say, next feature, please. I find that so exciting. Whenever I see an Alan Rowe project, I'm like, it's not just, I know he's not just doing this one thing. I know he's doing 90 things beside the, behind the scenes. And I can see these little stamps of Alan throughout the movie. Oh, thank you. Well, I also got to eat. So I've, I've, got, I've grown this habit that I just like to pay bills and eat. So I just take it as it comes along. a girl. <laughs> and now for my shady summary. In the Broadway yes. musical company, Elaine Stritch asked the question, does anyone still wear a hat? And the answer is no, because that bitch, Alan, is hoarding all the goddamn hats. <laughs> <laughs> Let other people have control, I, queen. I, control queen. Control <laughs> queen. Only, only wish that was true. <laughs> okay, before we go any further, Alan, please, now yes. that I've built you up, please explain to the people who you are, what you do, what goes on. Well, presently, like everybody else, I'm doing not much. You know, but I mean, in reality, I'm a filmmaker, I'm an actor, I'm a film editor, and I've been a hair and makeup artist for about, oh, well, oh let's say over 35 years now. Yeah, what I thought was interesting, too, is that you started off in fashion. And made this transition yes. to horror, which is, what a switch. In a way, it isn't, to be quite honest with you. You know, I, mean, I, I grew up living in my basement in horror movies. You know what I mean? That was my, that was my love. You know, I, I, I saw like, you know, whatever happened to Baby Jane by the time I was seven years old changed my life. And I was like, I want to be that now. I get that. I get that. Because I noticed you also grew up in New Jersey. Yes, I grew up in Northwest Jersey, a little small town called Wharton. And, um, you know, population 2000, that type of thing. Uh, my family's been there for over 120 years. You know, we were all like born, raised and die there, <laughs> literally. And um, it's just, it was kind of like Mayberry with a dash of Salem. Nice. <laughs> 
Well, that makes sense because Don Knotts captures all that sensuality and horror of <laughs> both of those things. Yeah, he does, by the way. <laughs> Giving my secrets away, my love. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, and I was just peeking at you through the bedroom window. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, <laughs> but yeah, I just lived, you know, I just lived, you know, uh, you know, a very quiet childhood living on horror movies, creature features, chiller theater, the whole nine yards. But I was also an artist. I was painting and drawing hmm. by the time I was four years old, and I had a real talent for it. And I was always like one of the best artists in school, the best artists in class, always got an A. Even in high school, they had started way back in the dark ages, back in the 70s, they had started elective courses. So I was actually able to study commercial art for about six hours a day and then just kind of cram all the other classes into, you know, quick math, quick science, all that type of thing. And then went, and then I headed straight to New York immediately as soon as I was out. You know, and I just... um you know, since I was an artist and was f studying fashion and illustration, I wanted to be a fashion illustrator. That was my big thing. Kenneth Paul Block and Antonio and uh, all of these like amazing illustrators that were big at the time. The only problem is, as soon as I wrapped school in the late 70s, uh, photography was in, illustration was on its way out. So I had a couple good years of put, putting together some beautiful artwork for a lot of campaigns and stuff, but... I know I had to make the change, so I kind of made the three-dimensional change of just becoming a makeup artist, just basically switched my palette. And I wanted to really get into the fashion world big time. You know, so I started off with Wilhelmina and Elite and Ford as a test artist and all. But, you know, like anything, things change. And after about 10, 15 years in the business, I realized that I just didn't belong there. And um, a lot of people in the fashion world pretty much told me, you don't belong here. <laughs> you know, uh, I was a little bit too much for them at the time, you know, because coming with the late 70s and the 80s and disco and change, I was, you know, outwardly, my appearance was extreme, to say the least. Um, you know, I looked like Cindy Lauper, Boy George, Annie Lennox, Grace Jones, kind of all that thrown together. And um, it didn't go very well in the fashion field. It was just too much. Wow. You know, and I, I, yeah, they're just like, even as a makeup artist, I said, you look just way too outrageous. You really got to calm it down and get a little chicer and um, less tacky. <laughs> and they were probably right. But I just insisted to, you know, marching to my own tune and I continued with it. But someone finally gave me a smart idea come the 90s and said, you belong in television and film. You don't belong here. Um, you're never going to get past B-level working as a makeup artist. You're never going to get the Vogue covers. You're never going to get the Harper's Bazaar stuff. Um, they're just not going to want you on set. And even then, you already started to see people backing mm. up against you. You know, it was, it was a little tough, but, you know, I'm a strong-hearted bitch. I just went with it. And um, then I started getting into television, and I started getting into film, and I started writing, and it just metamorphed, you know, it morphed into becoming what I want, horror movies. I really wanted, I really just wanted to be a scream queen. To be quite honest, deep down, I wanted to be Beverly Garland. That's all I wanted. You know, mm -hmm. Allison Hayes or Faye Ray or something like that. And, you know, I kind of got that in a bit. In oh, bits, you channel you know? all that shit in your stuff. Yeah. And, so, and, of course, you know, Davis and Crawford and all that stuff were always my idols since childhood. And I know that sounds so cliche, but it's true. But it's true. The 40s, the 40s and the 50s, like, really formed me as a person and the way I looked and, you know, I've always gotten compared to one or the other. You poor thing, you poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, 
Everybody just refers to me as Maria Osborne Skyler, lover of glam. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy with that too. Get out the way you this thorny. <laughs> I'm rocking this turban and this crystal vault, both of, both of which I got at the dollar store with Bart Master Nordic. <laughs> That's right, and I am Hungarian, so there is gypsy in my blood. No, I just think it was just that kind of weird, that contradictory bias in the fashion world that you too much because she's what you would think is oh he's, t- he's taking risks and he's on the edge and fuck you know what fuck him yeah. <laughs> oh of course you know and you know what too i just wasn't willing to give up like my pay you know a full week's pay of work and shoots and stuff like that just to be able to afford that pair of jeans that everybody was wearing on set you know i still had rent to pay downtown i still had you know a lot of things to go with it so i, I kind of went in there a little too sensibly um, as far as my goals, I just wanted to create beautiful, beautiful pictures, you know? And once you've seen Cheryl Teagues without makeup, horror is the only possible transition. <laughs> Actually, I have to admit, you know, those girls, I, I have to admit though, those girls were really beautiful. I, I met some of them and they were really beautiful without a stitch of makeup. Actually, some of them mm. probably looked better. That makes sense. Without. Okay. So Definitely. this is normally a question that I ask at the end of these kind of sessions. But um, since we kind of got there on our own, you went there first. My listeners are going to get bored because I've told the story a million times. Growing up for me and even like up until my 30s, I had to hide my horror love from my gay friends. It was like another closet. Mm. I had these two wonderful guys who adopted me when I was a teenager, two older gays, nothing sexual or anything like that. But they taught me, you know, gay culture and gay, you know, gay etiquette and gay history. They taught me everything I needed to know to make that transition from being unruly gay boy to centered, sophisticated, as I possibly can, gay man. You're lucky. But they were always horrified by the horror thing. And for years, every, the oh, question was, sh- are, you, are you a serial killer or anything like that? But like, did you ever have anything like that? Is it another? <laughs> Funny you should say that. I, when I was in, I had it much earlier, actually, because by the time I was fifth grade, sixth grade, and I was really honing my talent as an illustrator, I used to draw pictures of like horror movie posters. Earth versus the spider, or all those 1950s chiller theater, theater things. And the teachers, which were nuns, and, you know, and <laughs> need I stay more? Roman Catholic upbringing, you know how that goes. They thought I was demented. By the time I hit eighth grade, and, you know, we kind of had the big, before graduation, we had sort of like a big art fair, and uh, Poseidon Adventure just come out and changed my life. So I must have done probably about oh, probably about 10, 11 by 16 paintings of scenes from that film. And there was such an uproar at that occasion by some of the mothers about, you know, this kid is sick, this kid needs problems. And of course, my mother was not going to have any of that. And um, I already learned by then, I was already on the fringe. Even as an illustrator, just my subject matter and things I like to do were just not done then. And, um, you know, I just knew I had a bit of a troubled road ahead of me. I wouldn't say troubled, let's just say a rocky road. You know, I was gonna have to jump a little bit higher on the hurdles than some other people did. But I gladly took the challenge. You know, I knew in the end, even by the time I was young, I must've been an old soul for some reason, but I knew even then that it would get better. I just knew it would. I, I, I can't explain why, I just, just knew this too will pass. You know, oh, you mean at five years old, I'm, not, I'm really not gonna be able to wear high heels? Are you, you know, and that was kind of devastating at five years old when I was kind of figuring out who I was and what I was and where do I fit in in 1964. Right. 
you know? And um, so, you know, and here I am now just doing everything I always wanted to do anyway. So, yeah. So it, it, for me, I'd say it's been almost a smooth ride. Almost. Almost. <laughs> sure. I've got the horror story. Hello, 17 years of Catholic school here. The whole shebang. Uh, the whole shebang. Oh, 17. I was supposed to be the priest in the family. Oh, 17. Oh, boy. It'd be something at confessions. <laughs> like, what? That's it? Get out of my booth. <laughs> Tell me something good. But That's not good. That doesn't even get a Hail Mary. <laughs> something I want to talk about is one of the things that define Alan for me. And one of the things that I first noticed about you, because I, my first encounter with Alan Roe Kelly was not in person. It was in a trailer that they showed at Harhound Weekend for their movie schedules. Oh. And it was the trailer for Sculpture. Oh. Which is a bananas movie. Bananas movie. Mean, mean. And it's got Marv in it. I love, I love all those things. All those things. Marv. <laughs> sure. Marv got, me, Bar, Marv got me the part in that film. What's his last name? Blavelt. Yeah, we were friends many, many years ago. And when he was just getting into film and, and, and me, I was kind of in there already. And, you know, he, he was like moving along and stuff like that. So he got me a part in that film, uh, starring with Rain Brown and stuff. And that was actually filmed in New Jersey. So, you know, it was an easy commute for me. I always found it funny that I was the only one in the cast that didn't get paid. But <sighs> again, you know, little things, just little things, you know, just sort of like you use my name. And you use my name and, no, I'm not saying that about Marv. I'm just saying. But, but um, you know, as far as the producers and stuff, you use my name for all your your uh, publicity and stuff, but you couldn't even pay me for the day. You know, that's all right. Now back to me. So there I am. <laughs> there I am in Horrorhound Weekend. And this was, again, long time ago. Long time ago. It was long. It yes, was, it is. That's a very It was long, long before I did the podcast. And, and I think I was even bandering around the idea of doing the show to some of my friends who are also podcasters who were at the Horrorhound Weekend. And the blank expressions that I was getting, I don't get it. Heart, 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 and gay, I don't get it. It's synonymous. Not at the time. No, no, I'm sure, but I'm then, sure. then I'm sitting there in the dark, and this trailer comes up for the day screening, you know, everything that was coming up. And I was like, oh, that's a drag queen. That movie's going to be hilarious. And then I heard the sniggering. Mm-hmm. Well, it is Indiana. It was Indiana. And, and, like, have you seen the Scream Queen documentary, the Mark Patton? No, I haven't. It opens talking with a lot of people at some of these conventions. About their thoughts sure. on Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and it's ugly. And I said, that's what I'm used to at those conventions. So I got really ner- I got nervous for the movie. And if I could just clarify what I mean by that, I, I got nervous about watching the movie. I got nervous about you in the movie. I got nervous about you out of the movie if you're at the convention. It just The whole thing made me nervous. Gotcha. Well, fortunately, I was only a bit part in two scenes. So, you know, it didn't do anything to, like, ruin their getting out. No, not at all. But I go to the screening. And whatever's going on on screen, it's a bonkers movie and it's a great movie if you get your hands on it. I'm fascinated by your character because I'm going, huh, not being played for camp. Just being. Just being. The character has a man's name and nobody on screen has an issue with it. It's not a plot point. It's just a person in the story. I'll be honest with you. I have always completely with every film since my very first film, I wanted me to be ambiguous. Just already there. No explanation needed. Don't have to explain it. Just make someone learn something a little bit. Do it on your own. You know, I just don't want it to invade the story because then it becomes all about that, you know? And at the time, that was an easy way for me to just get in because everyone just say, kept saying, oh, this is like some older actress from a soap opera that's getting into horror movies or something. Seriously. You know, they just thought, oh, someone from the stage or something like that, you know, because I was already 
40 by the time I started my first film. So, you know, I was kind of like Mae West. I was a little bit, you know, long in the tooth and, you know, pretending to be almost an ingenue type of thing. It was, it was an interesting entry into independent film, for sure. But I have to admit, I had very, very little slack about it. I had some. But all in all, I was kind of welcomed with open arms. And you don't get that a lot. So that's how I knew I found my home. That's where I found my hook. And to you, I'm like, that, that yeah. person is fascinating. And then when you showed up in Sean Abley's book. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then kept popping up on my feet. I'm like, I got to say hello. Oh, that's sweet of you. Thank you. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. A lot of people don't. I think they're kind of like afraid of me for some reason. And then probably I, I think I have a little bit of a reputation that precedes me as far as my wise mouth. So, you know, after a couple of years, you just don't, you just kind of cut through the BS and just say, honey, can it? I'm also from New York and New Jersey. So I kind of got that sensibility about me that kind of toughens us up a little bit. And, and Catholic school, we survived the worst. Like our, our, our yeah, skin is so, sick. <laughs> yeah, you get, yeah, you get to be a little tough. It's like, you, I said, honey, you're not going to say anything that I haven't heard before. So you're going to have to do a lot better than that. You know, as far as, you know, but I know what you mean as far as conventions. I had um, quite a bad incident happen with a Southern convention that I'd never show my face at again back in the day of forums. The MySpace day and forums and stuff. And um like like the Coliseum, the Roman Coliseum. <laughs> Most would think. <laughs> I've tried to tell people I didn't know Caligula. This is why Rome fell. <laughs> Alan Roe Kelly caused the fall of Rome. <laughs> Nero's my cousin, you know. <laughs> We're very I close. gave him that cigarette that he <laughs> threw on him. <laughs> that's, that's right. But no, it's funny. I, I mean, there was an event once um, that really bothered me. We're, we're trying to make a film and, it, and then another person decided to make the same film and this got into the forums and oh my God, the, the vitriol that came out of Texas on that was really bad. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. I, did, I, and I didn't even go into it. My friends went into defense. I said, guys, don't waste your time on this. And they're like, no, time needs to be wasted on this. This has got to be stopped right away. They can't be sitting there saying things about you when they don't even know who you are. But, And I was grateful for it. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well, at least I know where you stand. Yeah, that's true. It's true. You know, you get to a certain age, you just can't, you don't let things like that affect you so much, which is sad because you should let it affect you all the time. But then you can't live in a, you can't live in a world of just being in pain all the time. Yeah, they, they're so fine. They don't like you. They've got a problem with you. The rest of us love you. Oh, you're very sweet. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, but I, you know, I, it's so funny because I've been, my mom and I are talking. I said, I don't know what people think. I think they think that I'm still going to parties and hanging off the chandeliers like in the 70s still. I don't know what they think we do in private, you know? If they only knew how boring my life is right now. <laughs> I swear. Now, Alan says that. You can't see this, listeners, but he's got this eight-foot terrifying clown hanging on the wall behind him. It's not that boring over there. I don't know what kind of scary sex circus shit goes on in there, and I don't want to know. Well, it is a circus, that's for sure. <laughs> step right up, step right up. <laughs> Make a good barker. <laughs> yeah, but ambiguity is one of those things I love in all of your characters. Thank you. Yeah, I just think it's, I don't think it's an important thing to, like, bring that attention to it. I'm an actor or actress, whatever everyone wants to call me. I'm just there for the part. And that's it. You know, I just I don't need to prove anything later. If they want to talk about it, more than open to it. I went, after I reviewed Tales of Poe, I did a, a screening of it, you know, a watch party. The amount of talk that went on after about that second segment, the um, Cask of Amontillado. So, yes. They were all fascinated. Like, it just because your character of, not Dodie. Go, go. Dodie. <laughs> Dodo. <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's just call it Dodo. <laughs> Your character of Dobie Gillis for the really old people out there. No, no. <laughs> that ambiguity, because it's a wedding scene, it just added so much. People just said it added so much layer to the fact that it was never defined. Like, is it a gay wedding? Is it a straight wedding? And at the end, it doesn't matter. Absolutely. It can be whatever anyone viewing it wants it to be. One of the other things that I found, I was just, now that I've been watching a bunch of your stuff, particularly this week. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> You didn't have a knack for finding locations. That is my thing. That is my favorite thing. I, I love to get in the car and I just go and I take pictures of everything. I storyboard everything. And it's like, I mean, I'm doing it for three scripts I'm working on now because I, I have to have a location in my head before I write it. I don't know why. It's just one of my things. Now, listeners, if you know, I'm not audio podcast to get see what I'm talking about. For the example, using Tales of Poe again, yes. there, are, there are two fabulous locations in those first two segments. Yes. For um, t- uh, Telltale Heart and Cask of Amontillado mm-hmm. that elevate the whole movie because it's a low-budget movie, but it just makes the movie look like a million bucks to have this great location. And it Gallery of Fear. Yes. That weird temple-looking yes, building. Yes, yes, that one. Where, do you fo- where is that? that? Why was that? That, that? Was a, <laughs> a, uh, that, was a, um, that was a Ukrainian church area up in Glens Bay, New York. Uh, and um, okay. an actress that I've worked with, Zoe Damaklanda, beautiful actress who's always been in our films. She and her- Oh, she's on my list. She's on my list of people that I love seeing in Alan Roe Kelly movies. You have that little stable of films, she's just, the best. little actress. She's the best. Yeah. And um, she, she and her boyfriend were living up in that area. And she goes, I got the perfect place for you. I drove up and took a look. I said, oh my God, we're doing this. You know, and I just love to find stuff that just looks really unique on camera. That's all. Just something that'll stand. Something that'll stand out a little bit. If you don't have a great budget, then you got to make sure at least what people are looking at is interesting, you know, or odd, or just off kilter a little bit. And um, you know, with Poe, we only had altogether at the long run, I think maybe ninety thousand dollars, which to some people was a lot. That was the most we've had. But you know, uh, of course, we could still use a lot. We could have used a lot more, but you just have to do with what you have to do. And and you know, we wanted to make sure that. The people that we had in the film were taken care of as well, too, you know, because they were a lot of people gave us of their time, you know, and, you know, you just want to make sure you put out the best product possible. I don't want them to be embarrassed by it either. But and the other thing that I find fascinating about you, Alan O'Kelly, is that <laughs> especially coming from this background of fashion and makeup and glamour, you have no problem with getting gross, getting dirty, getting ugly. I, I, in your no, 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 I have never. Actually, I don't think there's a single role I've ever did where I actually even looked remotely attractive. Maybe Aww. maybe in the beginning of Cask, I looked okay. You know what I mean? I, I looked all right. But, you know, we didn't have ring lights then. We didn't have the time to do the extra fill lights to get rid of the bags under my eyes or, you know, do that. We didn't have time to do that stuff. And I just said, let it go. And I thought it was awfully funny because here I thought I looked so good in that film. And one of my best friends called after he saw it. And he goes, wow. He goes, he goes, Cask, he goes, that was such a great segment. And how brave of you. And I said, how brave what? And he goes, oh, to just look so old and worn out. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm going to fucking kill you. I said, I thought Thanks. I thought I looked good. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not even just talking about fashion. I mean, I I wasn't even just talking about fashion. I mean, you go in for the gross makeup because and, and like the gore and like you were. You, no, no, I'm you, not. I have no trouble. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of that at all. As a matter of fact, the funny thing is, you knew that, you know, the writings on the wall when the past, like, say, two years. All the roles I got were witches, hags, grandmas, and old, old like swamp women. 
That's all I got. And I took them because I got to look worse and worse per film. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're in the crone phase, as we like to call it in the theory. You know, I'm in the I'm in the high exploitation phase right now. So for for years in the theater, it's like for women's roles, you either get the Vestal Virgin, the whore, and then at a certain age, you're the crone. Oh, totally. Maybe, I, maybe I, a mom transition in between. Absolutely, but you know what? <laughs> if I could play, if I had to play that for 20 more years, I would do it. I'd have no hey. problem with it as long as the the role was diversified and had some meat to it. I don't. Sure. I don't yeah, I don't care what I look like. You know, because then at least if you go to the premiere, you can look nice. You know, you take a decent picture and that's okay. But it's, mm-hmm. I, no, I'm not vain that way. I really don't care anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I am, not, I mean, I am vain. That's not me, you know. But when it comes to film, I'm not. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's a wonderful sense of play about you in that sort of way. Someone not afraid to get dirty because I see it in so many movies. And I love the story that you had in Sean Emily's book about Ava Gardner on Earthquake. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, the proverbial smudge of of black on the cheekbone, right to show the hollows that she looked beautiful. And the poor thing, I mean, she's one of my favorite actresses, but if you watch Earthquake, you're gonna notice <laughs> there is not one close up of her at all. Mm, Everything's a wow. medium shot because they pulled those tapes so damn tight on her. There's some scenes of her close up and go, what did they do? <laughs> Even then I was trying to figure it out because I'd seen other films she had done that year where she just looked her aged self and gorgeous yeah mm-hmm. she had some bags under her eyes and her face was dropped a little bit but who isn't going to drop it in your 50s and 60s that's and nature she, and she wasn't really too afraid of that you know but but earthquake they really had to like i don't know i think they tried to make her 35 when she was 55 and we know that doesn't work that just doesn't mm-hmm. work <laughs> doesn't work <laughs> oh, believe no, me i've tried no, no. <laughs> The camera does not lie. It, oh. <laughs> it does not oh, lie. Oh, God. And then you hear no. 5K, 6K, this coming in. It's like, what the fuck? I said, we're all going to look like, we're all going to look like pin cushions by the time we keep injecting our faces with mo- so much stuff, you know? And I haven't gotten there yet, but boy, I'm, I'm tempted. No. Well, why bother when you can play roles like Beef Tina for the rest of your life? Well, I, I think that was... That was a one-time thing. We're not going to, we're not going to go back there. <laughs> I, I put way too much weight on for that. And it really took a long time. I mean, you don't go and put on like 60 pounds at 48 years old. Oh no. Cause they don't got to come up. You don't do that. Especially if you don't have a gym membership. <laughs> For my listeners, who is beef Tina Bouillon? Well, she's a very innocent young little girl who lives in the backwoods with her very loving family. And she's about 48 years old, but thinks she's 12 and looks like Shirley Temple. <laughs> Picture that. <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> We never had a better time. The film cost us, I think, $24,000. And we never had, we never laughed so hard. It's the first time Bart and I professionally worked together. That movie is bonkers. Uh, thank you. Bonkers. I, I, I'll, admit it, I'll admit, I wrote it in two weeks. I was stoned off my ass when I wrote the whole thing. And even when we did the, um, the, the, the table reading and Michael Gingolds was there from Fangoria. Mm-hmm. And after his finish, he just said, I can formally say that I've never been more appalled in my life than what I just said. <laughs> and, I, and I took that, <laughs> and I took that as the greatest compliment. I really took. Put that on the DVD box cover. <laughs> well, see that I stole, for that film, I stole the old John Waters adage of, well not adage, his technique, since the film had been so reviled through most of the press. You know, people either loved it or they absolutely hated it. So I used all the bad reviews as our as our selling point. Worst film ever made. I wish I could meet the director and punch him in the face. You know, those type of things. And I used that in all of our posters. 
you know, because I was like, well, don't fight it. Just go with it. And I can understand why people would watch that and go, oh, this is this is just awful. <laughs> You know, but I mean, it's a it's a exploitation film. What can I say? You Thank know? you. And we had a lot of fun, and those who got it got it. And that's you know, I, I would never want to be like either like it or you don't like it. I'd never want to be graying in the middle. That's just too boring for me. You know, I'd rather you have a strong opinion about it. Yeah, and if you don't like it, I'm not going to get mad. I mean, everyone's got their taste. It doesn't make any difference. And you or know, lack thereof, and that's oh, it. That's our purpose. Oh, you sweet. <laughs> Because it is such a tasteful film. No, no, it's a big yeah. departure from most serious stuff. Because there's a, there's a certain amount of class. It's dollar store class to stuff. Oh yes. But- oh yeah. And a lot of hand. Oh, a lot of handmade stuff though too. Uh, our art director Sandra Schaller came in and she worked with me on that, and she did such a remarkable job. And we watched a lot of old movies, the Texas Chainsaw Massacres, and all that type of stuff too, to follow the aesthetic in a sense, you know. And then and then we just made it our own. But you know, we lucked out. Um, you've worked with one of my favorite people on the planet. Who? Uh, like real life friends. Who? Jesse Gata. Oh, she's fabulous. I have. Isn't she great? I saw Jesse. Uh, geez, I haven't seen Jesse. Oh, well, we worked on a film called The Big Bad, mm-hmm. where I get to rip her eyeballs out, and then she rips my eyeballs out. And that was great. Yeah, I Yeah, that was like the third film where I got my eyeballs ripped out, and I said in the next script, like, can we like switch this up a little bit? I haven't been decapitated or shoot me or something, but stop ripping my stop ripping my eyeballs out. This time we're going to put other eyeballs into your eyeballs. Exactly. How's that? <laughs> but no, no, she, she's, um, I think she's so talented. She's a beautiful girl. Yeah, I had her on the, I had her on the show a couple of years ago. We talked about the, uh, the bad seed just when her movie, ooh, the moose head over the mantle came out. Oh, and I haven't seen it yet. And I heard it's, it's great. great. It's great. I saw clips of it at a, a screening where Telltale Heart was soon, and this was about three years ago, maybe four. And I haven't seen her or um her partner Brian Ink, whom they work a lot of films together. You know, lovely people. That was a, that was a great experience. So tell me, don't tell me there's anything bad about Tef- Tiffany Sheepas, though. I, you know, I don't know Tiffany very well. I, I knew I met her well, on, on that that uh, that werewolf movie. Oh, She Wolf Rising, right? Yeah, and stuff. Yeah, well, that was that was many years ago too, and I haven't I haven't seen her since actually. You know, so um, but but she's really coming along. I mean, I know she works a lot with my friend Michael Verardi in L.A. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, she's, she, you know, Tiffany just keeps getting better and better. She's, you know, she's really talented and she's, um, I think she's stunning, to be honest. And with a you. sassy Jersey girl. She, well, Love no, that. No, <laughs> she, no, Tiffany's from the Bronx, I think. She, no, she, she's, uh, cause she's on the uh, podcast now. Um, I thought she was from the Bronx. I'm sorry. She's a Jersey girl. Same oh, thing. Here. Same thing. <laughs> and stuff. But, you know, no, it's been many, like many, but many she, years since I've seen any of these people. She's got that metropolitan edge to her. That oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She is, she's a sassy gal, that's for sure. That's tough. A little bit of raunch, but sweet as a pickle. Sweet, su- sweet as a pickle. I, I admired watching her on set quite a bit because uh, she wouldn't put up with any of the stuff that was, uh, you know, going down. And I just watched her. I was like, oh, she's good. She, she knows her stuff. You know, okay. she's a good businesswoman. Definitely. So before the whole lockdown went on, did you did you have any projects that just came to a screeching halt? Or- oh Jesus, did we? Yeah, um, I've been um, I've been working with um, Nathan Faudry, an actor and producer, charming man. You must meet him. You must have him on your podcast, actually. And uh, we- yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> did you hear me? Did you hear me, Patrick? <laughs> yes, Sister Allen. Yes, Sister Allen. But um. And we just finished uh, editing his first feature called Site 13. 
And um, now the only thing left we have to do is just do the sound mix and the composing. The film is completely done and ready to go. So at least when all this is over, in about a month, you know, take about a month or two or three, and we could possibly get it out, you know, as an independent film. But he also had um, another script ready to go called The Furies, which I had a nice big part in too. And boy, did we, were we going to get a big budget. Like a big budget. For independent film, it would have been a beautiful thing. And of course... At the same time, Bart, who's teaching at the New York, you know, New York Film Academy in Los Angeles, was going to be moving to Italy to teach in Florence at the same time. So a lot of things were like in the mix, you know, it's like, oh, good, Bart, Bart will be in Italy and I'll go visit him for a couple of weeks and we'll do this film over the summer, which we would be probably way past pre-production now. But it happens, you know. Are, just... are we better? Absolutely. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. I, because I, you know what? I, I, it, it's life. I mean, the, the, trust me, there's, you know, there, there's a lot more people going through a lot worse shit than, you know, than the disappointment of not being in a film. That's that's irrelevant. It doesn't even mean anything. You know, know. there'll always be other movies and there's still chances that the movies will still be made. You know, so, uh, you know, I, I'm I, I can't complain about any of it. It just happens. It's life, you know, and with everything else going on, there's so much more important shit going on than than, you know what's your next film type of thing. At least that's how I see it. I would like to talk about A Far Cry From Home. Oh, oh, sure, sure. Because Sean Abley raved about it in the book. So it's always been in my mind. This is, an, this is sort of like the opposite of bloodshed in a direction. It's like- Quick summary, just explain the basic plot of A Far Cry From Home for the listeners who haven't seen it. Gay couple away on a vacation, you know, taking a weekend off, going out into the woods just to hit to a cabin, just to kind of sort out their differences because there's an age difference and there's a lot of emotional differences going on between them. They stop at an antique store. The one boy goes in and he doesn't come back out. And from there, it just starts into this, this, this horror hunt. Basically, these uh, people, these uh, um, religious zealots, that work the store and own the property have booby trapped the woods and they're basically out gay hunting, you know? So it's a very violent, very hardcore film. Uh, we shot that in five days, straight through. We shot it in sequence. We shot it in five days. It took about, you know, it took a good month to set it up, but um, we shot right through it. And um, uh, it was a, a great shoot, but it was a tough shoot. It wasn't that type of thing where after you wrap for a day, everyone goes, oh, wasn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, that's another one where you're stomping around in the woods barefoot. Think of getting moleskins for my feet or anything. No! The emotion level is so high and so raw, and it's it's hard to watch. Uh, yes, it is. I, I, it, it's and like, in, in, a, in a complimentary kind of way. You. It's hard to watch. It's trigger. It was triggering all my buttons. It, unfortunately, it was a little ahead of its time, and a lot of people didn't want to see it, and they didn't want to talk about it. Even at the time... When I sent it to a lot of gay and lesbian film festivals, it was thrown back in my face. How dare you make this? You should be much more of a responsible filmmaker. This is disgusting. And I couldn't believe that I was getting that. I think they would think differently if they saw it now. Um, it might be a little dated, and of course, but, but um, at the same time, it was just a strange, except for the gay and lesbian film festival in Long Island. They're the only ones that accepted it. Ah, that's my people. Hey. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yes. We loved your movies. It was such a they good movie. Um, you know, <laughs> and, all, and the horror community, of course, accepted it fully as a good horror movie and they loved the basis, but it it was a simple trope that's been used in films over and over again, except we just made the two lead characters gay. It blows my mind that people would. <sighs> And these, uh, sorry, I'm I'm so angry and like, uh, just, <laughs> it, 
I mean, the movie stirred up a lot, but I just saw a meme go around today. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hate to hear it. You no, know, you know, and the basic thing was it was for straight people who don't understand. There's not a gay person or a queer person that you know that hasn't had faggot screamed at them from a moving car. Oh, sure. I could name the dozens of that. Yes, dozens of exactly. That. Sure. It, ta- it tapped into that raw kind of basic fear that you're being attacked for no fucking reason. You've been picked at by people who don't, you don't know, and there's never anybody around. Or even worse, there is someone around, but they're not going to help. Because back when I was when I was coming out, like all the gay bars were always in the worst, most secluded neighborhoods. Like when you left the bar, it was tumbleweeds yes. at night. So that walk to the car was always horrifying. Absolutely. You just, you just didn't know. Exactly. And I, I mean, I was, believe me, I was scared making it. Because, um, and the actors, fortunately, the, the actors that we brought on were just so great. And, you know, I had to like make them go further with it. They're like, I can't do this. This isn't me. And they weren't worrying about how they were going to be represented in the film. Mm-hmm. They knew what the characters were all about. But it was so emotionally distressing for those men to treat me like that, that I had to tell them constantly, more, more, more. I want you to get worse with this. I want you to really dig deep. Yeah. If, if it's not in you, then pretend it's someone that you know that's been this way. Mm. But you have to go this way with it. And I, I think after the final cut, I had I think I counted the word faggot 72 times. And then I realized, I think you need to cut that down a little. You know, because I, I, it just it was a bit it was a bit of overkill. Yeah. You know, but but, you know, that's what editing purpose was all about. But and I was very nervous about putting it out there, you know, very nervous because I got the response I expected, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. unfortunately, it, it, it was just a bit ahead of its time, but I don't care. I'm glad I did it. Yeah, I, I, I'm very proud of that piece. It felt more distinctly personal. Yeah, I've been there because, I mean, and that's, of course, an extremely exaggerated version of what it is. But Matthew Shepard had just died yeah. years previously to almost similar circumstances. And, and so have so many other gay and trans people, you know, been murdered for the sake of walking down the street and pissing somebody off. You know, this was kind of the same thing, too. You know, many times I'd always been mistaken as a woman since the time I was, Jesus Christ, since I was a little boy, I was mistaken as a little girl. You know, it just... Just the way it is. That's my physiology. I can't do anything about that. I could be butch and everything. But then whenever I tried that, they would just think I was a lesbian. So, you know, I mean, it's like you're, you're damned if you're doing, damned if you're doing. Not that there's anything wrong. Of no. course, I'd accept I'd accept that too. But but then, it, then you're not being you and you're acting. And what's the point of that? Yeah. And, and just um, it was very easy for me to act that stuff out because I just kept drawing on a lot of things from childhood and my teenage years and being up in a very, you know, small town area. You know, where, where a lot of the boys weren't just not necessarily cool with me. By the time I got to New York, I was pretty much done with Budweiser and flannel, if you get my drift. You know, so. So we're back to lesbians again? I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, my lesbian sisters. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, but I get it. But it's just like, uh, I, I'm shocked that that happens because like uh, horror is all about that. It's all supposed to be about facing these kind of issues. In a sense, yeah. In a sense, yeah. But, you know, I mean, some people just didn't see it the same way I did. You know, so, you know, so, I mean, you know, that's okay. Fuck them. Fuck them. I know. I know. I I still love the film. I still love what it stands for. And it still has some good scares in it. It's the first time I tried to do something minus the camp, you know, which always seems, which always seems to eke its way in there for some reason. I can't help it. It's part of my aesthetic and it just happens. But the thing is too, every time I appear in a film, they call it camp. No matter what I do, they say, oh, it's camp. And I was like, do you even know what the word means just because I'm in it? 
Oh, don't get me started on these kids. Yeah. Today. Now, don't get me started. You don't understand what camp is. You throw that word around a lot. You don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to the point now that I don't even know what it means anymore. So, Alan Kelly, I think we've done this. Hey, thank you. It's been such an honor having you here. Thank you so much, you know. Oh, and, and, and always an honor being here, too. You know, love everything you stand for, you know. And just to say that, too, just, you know, with everything going on, you know, I stand in full solidarity with my black brothers and sisters out there. I, I'm just... um just, you know, anything you can possibly do to make it better, you have to, you know, it's just not about us anymore. You've got to really fix this. And I think after going through at my age, seeing the equal rights movements in the sixties, the women's rights, black rights, gay rights, AIDS rights, going through the whole nine yards to have to do it all over again. Mm -hmm. I think it's the final time though. I'm really hoping that this is it. Like everyone's going to be called on their shit, you know, and thank God, thank God. It can it's about time. I like, just fingers crossed, just fingers crossed. I have to give a lot of kudos to the new generation. I tell you, because the way everyone's been just sitting on their back for the past three years and just listening to shit happening and not doing anything about it. And this new generation coming out and say, we're, we're done with it. You can keep, you can put up with it and say it doesn't exist, but we're done with it. And I'm, I'm proud of them, to be honest with you. I'm proud to be part of it. Right on, Alan. I know you are too. I am too. I am too. I was yeah. letting I was letting you talk. I was letting you talk. Thank you. Yeah, so off, off my off my soapbox. Sorry. Careful, careful. The heels. <laughs> it's uh, it's metal reinforced. You don't want to sell Stevens yourself out, out of your way out of the Poseidon. You don't oh, want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how we brought, we brought it all around. That's how we wrap up the show. <laughs> it's really funny that you said that. That I was. It's it's so funny that you mentioned her that I was actually online last month looking for a pair of those shoes. Oh, I, God, I was like, now how am I getting myself a gold, pair of gold platform heels? And I'm thinking, where the hell are you going to wear a pair of gold platform heels? Where are you not? <laughs> well, anyway, I'm going to wear. <laughs> so before we wrap up, Alan Rowe Kelly, where can people find out more about you or contact you on social media? Oh, yeah. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter occasionally. Yeah, too much hate going on there right now, but I still I still watch it. And, and, and Instagram as well, too. But Facebook's the easiest bet. You know, I'm an old codger. So, you know, we're on the old person's page. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can find me in the AOL, the, uh, the, the AOL. In the, in the chat room. In the Alan Rowe Kelly for now. Oh, my <laughs> God. That's so funny. I told you. You're awesome. You're awesome. Thank you. I love you. Thank you for that. Thank you. And happy Pride, Alan Rowe Kelly. You too. Happy Pride to you, too. Thank you, Patrick. So thank you once again to the fabulous Alan Rowe Kelly. Yay! I'm so happy I finally got Alan on the show. And if you've enjoyed this week hanging out and learning more about Bart Mastronardi's work and Alan Rowe Kelly's work, tomorrow, Saturday, June 20th, at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we are having a very special double feature watch party celebrating the careers of both of these fabulous filmmakers. We are going to be screening starting at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Vindication, directed by Bart Mastronardi. And this is a different kind of coming out story. One with a bigger body count than, you know, Love, Simon. This is the one of which Clive Barker said, Eloquent, original, and deeply felt. Vindication is a total vindication for movie making the old-fashioned way. What a real horror movie looks and feels like. Fabulous, dark, dark, dark little movie. And approximately 4.45 p.m., we are going to be screening the short film, a Far Cry From Home, directed and starring Alan Rook. And then at 
we will be showing Tales of Poe, which is co-directed by both Bart and Alan. Good stuff. If you're unable to make it, you can find both Tales of Poe and A Far Cry From Home on Tubi, although A Far Cry From Home is included in the anthology film Gallery of Fear. So do a hunt on that and, and go check that out if you can't make the show. But make the show because Bart and Alan, hopefully, are both going to be there in the chat. They both said they're going to try to make it, so hopefully they'll be there. They can answer questions. They're going to be giving all kinds of cool insight. 3 p.m. June 20th on cast. All I have to do is click bit.ly slash sqsocial. That's bit.ly slash sqsocial and join the fun. Yay! Hi, Smoochie. Smoochie's here. She wants to join the fun. But, Smoochie, I have to talk about Squadcast first because I have to thank everybody at Squadcast. I wouldn't have had this fabulous interview with Alan Roe Kelly and been able to save the, the interview with Alan Roe Kelly after I fucked it up the other day. Right? Remember that? Remember that from all the episode, the beginning of the episode? Remember that part from the beginning of the episode? Yeah. If I did not have Squadcast, I'd be shit out of luck. But I'm not because Squadcast is remote recording for professional podcasters. Yeah, they, they back up everything instantly as you're recording it. So if you happen to fuck it up, they still got a copy. It's a lifesaver. It saved my cheese several times. Why do you keep putting your cheese in danger, Patrick? That's not the point right now. So if you're a professional podcaster or just want to sound like one, check out Squadcast. Get a seven-day free trial at bit.ly slash squadqueens. And that's queens with a Z. And thank you to my podcast host, Captivate FM. Captivate FM makes podcasting so easy, and they are the only podcast host that is actively invested in growing your podcast. They just released a hot new feature today that everybody's talking about, but I don't know what it is yet because I'm here talking to you. I've gotten ping messages coming up on my screen, and I can't go check it out because I'm talking to you. But anyway, if you're tired of getting the runaround from a podcast host that really doesn't give a crap about you, come check out Captivate FM. That link is down there in the show notes. All these links are down there in the show notes, so you have no excuse. Come and play with us, and come check out Squadcast. Sound like a professional podcaster, have a professional podcast host, and just be awesome. So next time, we're going to have another flashback episode with... Writer, director, playwright, Sean Ambley, and, and author, author. He's the book. He wrote the book that introduced me to Alan and so many of those, these other queer directors. And that book is Out in the Dark, Interviews with Gay Horror Filmmakers, Actors, and Authors. Link also in the show notes. Find that on Amazon. And also on the schedule, we are going to be talking with the guys from Death Drop Gorgeous, the upcoming film Death Drop Gorgeous. You'll remember them. They were on the One Dark Night episode a while back. And, and... And it just got confirmed today. And coming up after that, I'll be sitting down and talk to the crew of Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, the Mark Patton documentary. So I'm very excited about that. I hope you're very excited about that as well. Okay, Smoochie is hitting me in the leg like a crazy person. So I'm going to just wrap this up. So until next time, my beautiful, beautiful screamers, please continue to make the world a safer, saner place by observing the Scream Queen's golden rule. You know what it is. Well, it keeps changing, but you know the basic part of it. Fight or flight. Survive the night. Make it to the final real baby. And how do you do that? Stay the fuck home. Wear a fucking mask. Wash your fucking hands. Share black stories. Black lives matter. Defund the police. And it's Pride Month, so be fucking fabulous, okay? Okay. Word. Did I just say word? I did. Word. <laughs> The music for tonight's show, unless otherwise specified, has been written by Sam Haynes. You can find all of his music at www.bandcamp.com. Bitches!